This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. partnerships are nothing new to American politics, as we have seen thus far in the narrative of this podcast. But what happens when the domestic world and the political realm overlap? That's what we'll be exploring in this episode. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As we've already seen in our narrative episodes, there are many famous political partnerships in American history prior to the Civil War. Certainly, Washington and Hamilton, as well as Jefferson and Madison, come to mind. However, we've also seen in the early days of Washington, D.C., where housing was scarce, that political colleagues sometimes lived under the same roof, such as Meriwether Lewis living in the executive mansion with Jefferson, or the Supreme Court all staying in the same boarding house. This intersection of the domestic and political worlds would have an impact on the political landscape and history of the United States for decades to come. And in this episode, I'm joined by a special guest, to explore one of the most significant partnerships in American history. Dr. Thomas Balserski earned a Ph.D. in history from Cornell University in 2014. He is currently an assistant professor of history at Eastern Connecticut State University, where he teaches broadly across American history. His research interests include the antebellum period, the history of manhood, and presidential politics. His new book, Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King, was published by Oxford University Press in 2019, and it is this book that we discuss in this episode. We had a great conversation about the politics, ideologies, and society of antebellum America, and not only how Buchanan and King fit into all of that, but what studying their lives and their relationship can tell us, in turn, about larger historical themes. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Tom. As we get started, I wanted to start by asking you, What originally got you interested in exploring the history of James Buchanan and William Rufus King's relationship? I don't think I turned to them first, although their relationship became chapter one of the dissertation. I have to go back to a graduate seminar I took at Cornell University on 19th century America with Derek Chang, who gave us the freedom to pick a topic in history uh, of, of the history of this period. Um, and to write about it, which is a lovely open-ended assignment. I actually first wrote, my, I guess I wrote my first graduate paper on a 19th century history topic at Cornell on the F Street mess. And for those who don't know, they are a particularly infamous group of Southern senators um, who lived together in a boarding house in Washington, D.C. in the 1850s, um, and whose collective power gave them such influence that um, they were able to influence Franklin Pierce to agree to rescind or do away with the Missouri Compromise in the proposed Kansas and Nebraska legislation. So that's 1854. I was and have been always interested in antebellum history. Antebellum history has always intrigued me. The players involved always seemed freighted with such importance. 
the causes of the Civil War more generally, what brought our nation to fight brother against brother. Those are stirring topics. Those are things that draw at the heartstrings that get you thinking about larger questions in American history, thinking how our history has relevance to the, to the present. And when you broaden the tapestry of figures from the antebellum past, you can't help but look at the president at the time, President James Buchanan. He was president from 1857 to 1861. Buchanan is not an unknown figure. Pick up any book about the antebellum period. He typically has an entry in the index, and sometimes he gets more detailed treatment. Other times he's something of a straw man to which bad things seem to happen or bad decisions are made, but who is not a full-fleshed-out figure. And I might have kept him there. I mean, I might have focused on the legislative process and ignored the presidency in this period, as scholars sometimes do, simply because this is the period of the weak president. Um, and Buchanan is weaker than, than many um, in, our, in our American history. But there was something about him that caught my attention, and that led me to then explore his previous political relationships, and then particularly that with William Rufus King, Namely, James Buchanan was a lifelong bachelor. And I began to realize that not only was I interested in anti-male politics and friendship and manhood, but bachelorhood. And I asked the question, just who else was a bachelor in the Washington, D.C. of this period? And I quickly learned from just a cursory sketch of Buchanan that indeed William Rufus King, a senator from Alabama, who was Buchanan's intimate friend, was also a lifelong bachelor. And from there, I had the first chapter of my dissertation, which was about a series of male friendships and how they related to the coming of the Civil War. And in preparing the dissertation for publication as a book, I decided to focus on that chapter to make chapter one the focus of a book. And there it is. That's how I came to write Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. It's amazing how one project can sometimes lead into another and lead into another. So before we dive into Buchanan and King, I was wondering if you could take a minute because I think that one of the things we often hear that Buchanan and King lived together for a good period of time. But one of the things that you emphasize in your book is that there were there was much of that time that they were living with other messmates. So I was wondering if you would, wouldn't mind talking about some of the other messmates that, um, that folks may not be as familiar with, but were pivotal to that, that relationship. Great. Yeah. Um, in Bosom Friends, I was really, really pleased that my publisher permitted me the space to um, prepare three appendixes. And one is the Washington residences of James Buchanan and William Rufus King over the period 1830-40-53. They did first live together in 1834, in starting in the session that begins in December, congressional session, and extends to March, which is the um, end of the, I guess, congressional term, sometimes called the lame duck term. In, in what is a two-year congressional term. Now, they were both in the Senate at that time, so although they were on six-year terms, nevertheless, they followed that same two-year cycle in terms of congressional meetings. So at the time, James Buchanan and William Rufus King also lived in the same boarding house, or messed as a verb, with Bedford Brown, who was the senator from North Carolina, and Edward Lucas, who was in the House of Representatives from Virginia. Now. 
what they all share in common is that they were all Democrats, one. Buchanan was from Pennsylvania, but the other three men were from the South, North Carolina, Alabama, Virginia. And Bedford Brown was married, but the other three were not. So we can say in the first mess that it was largely bachelor, largely Southern. Later on, as the various boarding house configurations begin to, to change, Buchanan and King have one session where they do not live together. Then they're back together with a new cast of characters, including Robert Nicholas, who is another Southern Democrat. He's from Louisiana, also a bachelor. And in this mess, it's Buchanan, King, Nicholas, and Lucas, and the four of them are all bachelors. So we have now, for the first time, a bachelor's mess. And that's actually the phrase that Buchanan used in one of his letters to talk about the grouping. I knew that was significant because messes, the, the boarding houses at the time, often played a role in political identification and affiliation, in addition to a kind of personal identity. And so Buchanan's relationship to bachelorhood is, throughout his life is complicated. Uh, both in terms of how he saw himself as well as then how he's perceived politically. But some other bachelors uh, of the mess include John Pendleton King of Georgia, and then later on we get William S. Ramsey, another bachelor, and then later on we get William H. Roan, who's from Virginia, Ramsey was from Pennsylvania, and Nicholas I mentioned already, and then the last man with whom they messed was in the, in, the, in the Congress was Clement Clay, who was Senator from Alabama, was married. They did at times have other members of the mess in them. It was difficult to try to determine just who else might be living in the same residence. At one time, John um, Catron, the Supreme Court Justice from Tennessee, was a part of a mess with the with King of Buchanan. Um, there may have been other people not affiliated with the United States Congress who were in the same boarding house. But the primary source for this, this, this table I constructed were, primary sources were the congressional directories, um, some of which have been compiled and published in a, in a book called United States Congressional Directories, edited by um, Goldman and Young. And primary sources themselves are these small pamphlet-style uh, directories, which are available at the Library of Congress and on microfilm and at the Washington, D.C. Public Library. And then in addition to that, I supplemented my, my calendar here, or rather my appendix, I guess, with just reading the letters between them and picking up on any reference to other people who might have been living in the boarding house. So I was able to, to put together a pretty detailed list. And so I would say, with one interruption, Buchanan and King lived together while in Washington from December 1834 until King's departure for France as Minister to France in April of 1844. So approximately nine years and five months. Well, and one of the points that you mentioned that has that was really fascinating to me in reading the book was this kind of confluence between the, the political life and the domestic life. And one thing in particular that caught my interest is that you mentioned how Buchanan's positions on slavery and the growing abolitionist movement in the antebellum period were shaped by his living situation with the bachelor mess. Would you mind sharing some of how that domestic space helped to shape his political life? 
Definitely. In Bosom Friends, I try to divide the story chronologically. So I do proceed from the first year, which is William King's birth year uh, in 1786, and I end technically with, with James Buchanan's death year in 1868. But the heart of the book is the period in which two men lived together, as just discussed. And it's really over that nine-year period that we see the most intimate contact between them and among their messmates. So it's important to establish that Buchanan, first of all, at this time was already a Jacksonian and was already a Northern Democrat. That being said, his political history before then was Federalist and his change to Jacksonian politics took place in a, in a heated moment in the election of 1824. So 10 years later, he's a committed Jacksonian. And so he, he already shares basic political principles with other Democrats. So William Rufus King, his fellow Democrat from Alabama, has more in common with Buchanan as a Democrat than, say, a Whig or rather a National Republican or, or some anti-Jacksonian affiliation. The parties are messy at this time. So that, that's just the first of baseline. You've got two men now who have a baseline political affiliation, which is different than uh, 10 years earlier where the parties were in flux, where Buchanan sort of was an orphaned Federalist, so that now partisan affiliation matters to a much greater degree, I would say. Issues that then come up, now this is the 1830s. This is the second term of Jackson. Much of the fire and brimstone rhetoric of disunion has already passed. That is to say, the nullification crisis, the veto of the, the, the bank charter, the second bank of the United States. So by the time Buchanan comes to Congress in 1834, a lot of the most, I guess, um, divisive issues have sort of been settled for a time. And very quickly, the, the focus is put on the election of 1836, which is to say Martin Van Buren's presidential election. And it's within Van Buren's first year in office as president that we get the first major, I guess, political issue related to uh, the panic or recession of 1837, which of course has to do with Jackson's veto of the, of the bank and the withdrawal of federal funds or deposits in, from, the, from this now defunct Second Bank of the United States, a credit contraction, and then liquidity crisis, we might call it today. Buchanan then has to, I guess, step up to the plate, and he does. He, we see him now supporting the Senate's independent treasury bill, which was Van Buren's plan to sort of replace the, the Bank of the United States with this, this independent treasury. This is something of a natural progression uh, for King, but not so much for Buchanan, who had been pro-bank previously. And you can see him sort of changing his tune in order to fit to the political wind. So I think the first, perhaps, and an, from his point of view, most freighted change may well be his view towards the bank and towards tariffs to a degree. He became anti-tariff, and, and that sometimes rubbed the manufacturing base in Pennsylvania the wrong way. But of course, slavery is the issue that we, we look back on in retrospect, and, and, and especially from the fulcrum of the Civil War that follows, and we tend to see it as being the dominant issue. That may not be, have been the case for Buchanan and King, at least initially. Certainly in the 1830s, Buchanan saw divisions over slavery as, as meddlesome and as potentially um, catastrophic for the Union. But 
was still in a kind of position of power, both within the Democratic Party and within popular opinion, let's be fair, to institute a procedural procedural move that has come has come to be called the gag rule, in which petitions from abolitionists that were sent to the Congress, which would normally have to be read into the record, could be instead received and tabled, meaning they would not have to be read. And, and so the, the gag idea, meaning there's literally like putting a gag in the mouth, not being able to speak. And this essentially silenced debate in the Senate for a decade, till 1850. And at times Buchanan would not give a pro-slavery speech is how I might say, but instead would support his Southern colleagues and their defense of uh, sort of the protection of slavery at different points. King often served as president pro temp of the Senate. And so he didn't often speak, but when he did, it was often to support Buchanan in some way or to kind of second the motion. So I think those are some early moments where we see him hardening along what we would call pro-slavery lines, which is to say defending the institution of slavery, as well as along Jacksonian lines, particularly around economic policy. And there are other moments of it. I actually wanted, though, to do a more precise analysis rather than to pick out, as I've just done, the most high-level points. And so I did a roll call analysis, which is actually Appendix B of the book, to try to correlate Buchanan's voting patterns with his messmates, to try to see if we can come up with that, sort of like how strong a relationship or correlation was there without slipping into causation and correlation debates. And within the, the various congressional meetings that Buchanan sat in with his messmates, we look at voting patterns in common. And I found that over the nine-year period described, he voted in common with William Rufus King, his primary messmate, 87.9% of the time. Certainly when it came to all the major legislation, we find them voting in common. They, they did vote differently around the edges, often around what might call discretionary spending today. But for the most part, they had come to pretty much align. And the big issues, particularly economic and domestic slavery, they, there was a clear alignment at this time. So I've been challenged by readers to come up to really describe the relationship between Buchanan and King and thus the boarding house as an agent of that relationship. And the word I've come up with might be a bit of a kind of a precedence view, but I use the word incubator, this idea that you put two people almost like chemical agents within a controlled environment, in this case, the house, and the reaction takes place. We, we can pinpoint certain moments where the influence of King on Buchanan plays out. It's, it's harder in their boarding house life, quite frankly, because they didn't write as much to each other. And Buchanan's correspondence during this tenure, his tenure period in the Senate is sparser than I might like. But certainly, too, their relationship outside of the Washington boarding house in the years after 1844, where the correspondence does increase, shows more direct connections and influences. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Well, and, and you mentioned um, during their time 
in the boarding house that they were working to position themselves as conservative leaders of the Senate. Can you speak for a moment about what conservatism looked like in the antebellum period? It's a good question and certainly relevant to our political understandings today. I think it's fair to use the word conservative, first off. Uh, I think liberal is a more difficult, perhaps, word to pin down as it's changed, I think, more so than conservatism. But conservatism, on the whole, has been easier, I think, to find within political history, which I think is something scholars are coming to point to more and more and talk about. So that's, I think it's actually an area of interest today still. So I think conservatism in this case meant, number one, institutional conservatism. The idea that um, the Senate within the Constitution was the upper chamber and had a kind of more reactionary duty to it. And so they saw themselves as conservative, institutional conservatives in the same way I think that um, the House of Lords in its relationship within Parliament is to the House of Commons. So I think that's the first way in which they were truly the conservative body, as he said at one point. But also political conservatism, generally, we might think of it as being opposed to a number of issues that would fundamentally change the relationships within society. Certainly slavery fits within this this paradigm of political conservatism at this time. For Southerners, for someone like William Rufus King, the institution of slavery, the plantation economy, and society that had developed was to him the only kind of issue that, it's not the only issue, but is the most important issue that mattered to him, preserving that way of life, that balance, keeping the people in the hierarchy at the top, at the top. So customary relationships, those between social betters, those who conceived of themselves as being elite, that was sort of maintaining that, that those social relationships is also part of the conservatism of this period. You see it, you see it in, in just small ways. Buchanan dressed the same way pretty much his entire political life. He held on to outmoded fashions, as did King. Famously, too, I mean, this is, I think, political symbolism. Someone like a James Monroe wore the knee-high socks and breeches through his presidency, a kind of callback to the, the earlier revolutionary moment. So I think there is a way in which Jacksonian conservatism also stands in as a kind of politics. Um, holding on to the political principles of the party of Jackson, even as times are changing, even as new issues come about. It's that commitment, which will later be, I think, correctly labeled stubbornness, that makes Buchanan um, at times an ineffective leader as president. But in terms of a creed, in terms of a commitment to constitutional principles, particularly around presidential power, executive power, these are con- these are conservative principles. These are principles that today we would call strict constructionism. Not quite originalism. I think that's a very problematic concept slash phrase, but especially given Buchanan is not 200 years after the Constitution. So I would just say strict constructionism or strict reading of the Constitution, Jacksonian principles, commitment to the institution of slavery, the balance between northern and southern states, the federalism, the, uh, the observation of so-called states' rights, all of that, all of that, I think, is a stew that defines the actual practice of conservative politics. Now, one could get into the, the philosophy of conservatism at this time, and I think someone like Edward Burke comes to mind as being important, as an influential figure to both Buchanan and King. Um, Michael Connolly has written a wonderful article about Burke's influence on Buchanan. 
So there were there were so-called conservatives coming from 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 the UK actually from Britain who were in a more a more centuries old tradition of what we would call today liberals and conservatives, but they had different names, Tories and Whigs. And so perhaps I think still within American conservatism there was a kind of philosophical leaning towards what was what was being done overseas. So I think there's that too. We don't have a lot of original conservative thought this time. John Calhoun, in his final works, his disquisition, is considered a conservative mind. But at the same time, there's always these, there's always the sort of the radical element that slavery demands. So someone like Calhoun, who is otherwise an American conservative, nevertheless, in his final works, is, is, is calling for a dual executive, for a major modification of constitutional principles so as to protect the institution of slavery. Abel Upshur, who was the, the Secretary of State killed in the explosion of the peacemaker gun on the Princeton in 1844, whom Calhoun replaced, he was, he was a conservative. He's been, I think, rediscovered by modern conservatives to sort of to be one of their own. And Upshur's reply in the Senate is cited, or is it the House, I think. So it's, it's primarily, honestly, Southerners in this period who get a lot of attention as sort of American conservatives. But there's a tainting, I think, to this conservative philosophy around the issue of slavery that does not jive with modern conservatism. Because, again, although there might be a commitment to class relationships and to economic order and things of that nature today – only in the most disgusting, distasteful circles does anyone, I think, want to talk about racial hierarchy and sociobiology and just a number of really just bad things that, that these guys all believed in, to be honest. So, I mean, 19th century conservatism was, was deeply, what we would call today white supremacist, hierarchical, and yet it can't be divorced from the rhetoric of conservatism, political conservatism, which Buchanan could embrace unproblematically. Absolutely. And I think you make a good point of, of this connection through the, the, the threads of conservatism over, over the course of history, this, this preservation of, of the current norm. That seems to be kind of that common thread that goes through. But then there are these variations, and especially you look at the writings and the speeches of Southern conservatives in the antebellum period, and it's it's very harsh language, and and I think language that most conservatives, most people who identify as conservatives nowadays, would not in any way, shape, or form condone. But yeah, yeah, and yet, like I said, Upshur, I was just trying to remember what he it was Upshur's view of the Constitution. He printed it as a pamphlet in his reply to Joseph, Judge Joseph's story, and, and it, it's a it's a work that. It's been overlooked in its time, a brief inquiry into the nature and character of our federal government. So it's thinkers like this that from the 19th century, Calhoun, Upshur, a few of them that are, I guess, part of this intellectual lineage. But yeah, there is a kind of at arm's length relationship, I think, to 19th century conservative thinkers in American history because it's primarily around maintaining the institution of slavery within the Southern way of life. Well, thank you for that. Kind of turning our, our conversation a little towards more of the, the personal aspects of, of your book, I was wanting to see, um, what can you tell us about Buchanan's attempts at love and how that compared to social norms at the time, especially with men in politics? That, that was really a fascinating, fascinating part of, of your book. Buchanan 
was, I think, a partial romantic. I say that after struggling for years here to truly understand how he felt about women, about courtship, and about romantic love. I think he was a cynical romantic. I think he played the game once, he did it poorly, and he was scarred. I think that scarring healed, and yet I think he was clever and shrewd enough to know how to, to hold on to the value of, of that past romance to say nothing of present flirtation and courtship. Allow me to explain a little bit. So famously, Buchanan's a bachelor. Perhaps as famously, Buchanan was once engaged to marry. Her name was Ann Coleman. She was, at 24, herself something of uh, a borderline case of being past the, the traditional or societal age of or socially acceptable age of marriage. Buchanan was a bit older than she. He was considered Lancaster's most eligible bachelor. She was the wealthy daughter of an iron magnate, Robert Coleman. Their engagement was thought to be a good match, probably more so for Buchanan, who stood to inherit the wealth of the Coleman family in time. And yet Buchanan, a busy lawyer, a prominent lawyer in Lancaster, constantly traveled back and forth between Philadelphia and other parts of the state to practice law. And in that, in the course of, of their engagement, he neglected Ann Coleman. There is one incident where he came back to Lancaster and paid a call at a, fr- at a, a friend's house, and another married woman was president. Word got present. Word got back to Ann Coleman, who broke off the engagement in haste, who, who just felt that neglect had been too great. She then travels to Philadelphia to try to lift her spirits, only to in December of 1890, 1819, die of what her physician described as hysterical convulsions, most likely a opiate overdose. So Buchanan now is had a broken engagement and his ex-fiancee has died of what we would probably consider a drug overdose today. Did not, did not um, look good, no matter how you, how you spice that. He was somewhat socially ostracized in the moment. Now, if you take his autobiography that he wrote or his, his autobiographical sketch seriously, and I do, and he says that this is the impetus that drove him back into politics. And he'd previously been in the, the, the legislature of Pennsylvania as an assemblyman, um, but he had not yet jumped into national politics. And following Ann Coleman's death, he does so and is eventually elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, thus putting him on the course towards uh, career in politics nationally. Um, and all during that time, he is close with female friends. He is talking about marriage and how he, he presumes he will need to marry. Um, there's at least three instances I find where he was seriously looking into marriage. All three do not end in marriage, quite obviously. And the explanation has to be given that he was also a family man. He was a, one of several children in the Buchanan family, but of the two sisters that lived to marry, both had children of their own and both sister and husband will die prematurely, leaving their children in the care of the Buchanan family. And Uncle James will become a kind of surrogate father, particularly two of these children, um, Harriet Lane and James Buchanan Henry, his namesake. So the Lanes and the Henrys, 
And Phil Klein, who's the autobiographer, sorry, the biographer of Buchanan, and I think that has the deepest understanding of James Buchanan for all sorts of reasons. He was from Lancaster himself. He worked in Penn State. He had access to archives that seemed to have disappeared. But Klein basically comes up with the idea that Buchanan was a so-called bachelor father. And you think about it. Here's a man who's danced around courtship, who's been brokenhearted once, who has familial obligations. And then, yes, he could marry. I mean, he could have married at 40, 50, 60, even 65 is not out of the question. Even the year he was elected president, James Buchanan could have married. That he didn't tells us, I think, more about his own decision than that to not marry because of family reasons than anything else. Now, this gets into just all sorts of counter arguments that are almost unanswerable, which is to say that people want to read in Buchanan's inability or, or lack of desire to marry as having not the, what we might call the sexual passion or the heterosexual passion for women. To be honest, there's no, dis, there's no disproving that argument. And part of what I've tried to do in this book is to try to lay out sort of the, the kind of problem of, of James Buchanan's sexuality and to sort of use friendship as a kind of entry point into that relationship. Because there's been a logical slippage from going from saying, okay, Buchanan never married, Buchanan had a failed engagement, to then saying, well, that, aha, that must mean his relationship with men, therefore, became his, his, uh, his sexual kind of outlet. And then it's another leap to then say William Rufus King, therefore, becomes that person. And when we look to the gossip of the period, when we look to the surrounding evidence, we find things like Mr. Buchanan and his wife. And so it really is one whole messy ball of wax to talk about Buchanan's romantic life, to talk about his connection to women, and then, as has, often, has been done lately, his connection to men. I think you make some really great points about that and, and really trying to lay out and examine the facts and where more modern interpretations have taken leaps that maybe aren't necessarily justified in the record. And I really enjoyed how you discussed these gender roles and how how gender roles really came into play and even in the political sphere. So turning to the other main figure in in Bosom Friends, you mentioned how King was referred to as Aunt Nancy or Miss Nancy by some of his political opponents. Would you mind talking about the context of that characterization in terms of the time period and the impact, if any, that it had on King? So William Rufus King is the lesser known figure of the pair. We know from his biography, he was born in North Carolina, near Fayetteville, and spent most of his early adulthood there. Um, he rose to power politically quite quite early on. He was among the youngest ever elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, he attends the University of North Carolina. That Before that, um, gets his start in politics, uh, also as a plantation owner, an owner of slaves. And eventually, in the great relocation to the South uh, West, what is today the Southeast, he will end up in, as one of the founders of the town of Selma, Alabama, where he establishes a similar kind of plantation lifestyle, mostly absentee as he, he's in Washington and, and abroad and so forth. So William Rufus King is a genteel Southerner. 
he is someone who, like Buchanan, has a lifelong relationship to bachelorhood. And to a lesser degree, I think, a more problem. Let me say this. Let me rephrase this. To a, to a greater degree, a more problematic relationship to women. Whereas Ann Coleman is a documented courtship, William Rufus King never has a documented courtship. He claims at a few points in his life that he loved once and could never love again. And he's referring to a woman who was never really available to him. Princess Charlotte, the wife of uh, the future Tsar Alexander, and so she will become a Tsarina herself, an empress later on. This claim to have loved this uh, soon-to-be Russian uh, Tsarina is far-fetched, to say the least, and it is not really supported in anything other than family legend, which is to say probably what William Rufus King himself spun, and even, even some of the family members who later on you know, would, would tell these stories about their uncle or great-uncle seem to know that it's a bit far-fetched and, and says they're not sure if it's true, but it's a good story. But the fact that, that that's like the baseline here, King throughout his lifetime could say, I've loved, I can never love again. Later on, generations of nieces and nephews will see their uncle in action at different, different times and will, will basically claim that they think their uncle, William Rufus here, is, is a ladies' man and just sort of gets the attention of the ladies and he may marry one day, but he seems to instead be allowing the, the women to sort of go to the younger men. So he takes on an unc- avuncular role as a kind of, as his, as his nephew says at one point, a godfather to his countrymen. Um, and he's very comfortable in that role. So whereas Buchanan is flirty and seems to play with women, King doesn't. He sort of knows the appropriate relationship to women and he doesn't go, it doesn't for him, he doesn't pass it. He doesn't, cr- he doesn't transgress that line. Um, so this leads me to sort of see King as not playing the game of romantic courtship as uncomfortable. Even in, his, even in his, his friendly relationships with women, he's a favorite of certain women, but he does seem to be more comfortable in, in the presence of men. So he's the, he's the lesser known of the two figures for a reason. He was vice president, yes, so you'd think we would know something about him, but it's also because his personal papers are so few and far between. He's a harder person to really get to know. He's more enigmatic versus Buchanan. And that's saying something because because Buchanan was quite buttoned up and only rarely revealed his true feelings. Absolutely. And it was interesting because that, that is one of those things that we don't really think that much about. What we know about figures from history is dependent on what sources we still have. And I really enjoyed at the the end of the book where you talked about the many ways that his papers could have been in, in some way, shape or form were lost to us over time. So it, it ends up, we really do depend on kind of other people's impressions and, and what scattered resources we can still find to get an impression of King. And it was interesting because you, you've got this, this idea that he, that he was referred to as Aunt Nancy or Miss Nancy. Yes. But then also you detail numerous occasions where he engaged in duels, like for case in point, it really, um, 
I was familiar with these because I've the one month presidency of William Henry Harrison is one of my um, personal passions in history. Um, you mentioned the the two duels that he nearly had in that point with William Seaton and with Henry Clay. What impressions did you take away from those duels and how that fit into the the Aunt Nancy, the Miss Nancy, how he was perceived in public and what that really meant for him, if, if you were able to get any, glean anything from that? Yeah, I, and I wanted to get to the actual use of the, of the names Aunt Nancy and Aunt Fancy. So Andrew Jackson is often credited for ascribing that nickname to King. And I have tried to see if it's in writing anywhere, but it's not. Um, I've gone so far as to consult with the editor of the Jackson Papers, and after that consultation, I've come to the realization that it's something, like so much with Andrew Jackson, it's a phrase that was attributed to Jackson as having said it. So he likely did say it, but we don't actually find it in the writing of Jackson. So, so that's why I say Jackson called King Miss Nancy, not... So another, and the site. If you go into the citations, it's not clear in what way he was called that. But newspaper correspondents did refer to King as Miss Nancy in their publications. But this was from anti Jackson, or we might say proto Whig publications. So it's actually more complicated. It, it's almost as if, and this this is my guess, is that the opposition party was the first to belittle King in this gendered language of insult. And ironically, Jackson probably picked it up from there and then put it onto King. So I don't think, I actually don't think Andrew Jackson is the origin of the insult. That's my own take. As far as some of the other gossip circulating about them, I think it's important to note that, again, it comes from rivals within the Democratic Party, but it comes within private correspondence. So we have come as historians to rely, I think, unduly on a few pieces of evidence that survive from this period. And one of them is a private letter from the, who will become the governor of Tennessee, um, a, Jackson, a Jackson supporter, and then later a Polk supporter, Aaron Brown. Aaron Brown wrote to Sarah Childress Polk, the wife of James Knox in, in 1844, as the race for the vice presidency ramped up. And he wrote at that time in a letter that's been much cited Mr. Buchanan looks gloomy and dissatisfied, and so did his better half, until a little private flattery in a certain newspaper puff, which you doubtless noticed, excited hopes that by getting a divorce, she might set up again in the world to some tolerable advantage. Now, again, context. He's writing political gossip to the wife of a politician, whom, as we know from Amy Greenberg's excellent new book about Sarah Polk, was able to utilize this political gossip to advantage on her husband's behalf. But the gendering here is interesting. It's Mr. Buchanan, his better half, and then dot, 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 she, she might set up again. So he doesn't name in this sentence King, but there's a reference earlier to him. And what's interesting is the marriage here, Mr. Buchanan and his wife, is a reference to the political fortunes of the Buchanan King ticket in 1844. And whereas 
Buchanan had withdrawn from the presidential race to allow Van Buren to be nominated in 1844. King had not withdrawn from the vice presidential nomination. So this divorce that he's using, this, this insult, is a way of actually saying King is now going on his own to try to get the vice presidential nomination with Van Buren. Now, we know, in fact, that Polk emerges as the first dark horse candidate, although that's a debatable kind of moment, and then will not hold on to King as his vice president. Indeed, ironically, George Dallas Buchanan's major Pennsylvania opponent will become vice president. But it's, all, it's a complicated world. It's, it's a world of people competing for, for high political office. So, that we, so the fact that we see gendered language here is not, it's not even, it's just not surprising. It's par for the course. That gendered language of insult will appear over and over with King, again, is not surprising. It doesn't, it, it certainly points to a view of him as more feminine, as particularly when compared to Buchanan, as we might say, the missus or the woman in the relationship. And it was easy to make them gendered in that way. What's interesting, of course, is Buchanan is also taken to task in his politics at various times. He, he is made in 1848 in one cartoon I found to be a spinster, but so uh, was... Um, uh, Martin Van Buren and, and Polk and, and even um, uh, Levi Woodbury. When he ran for president in 1856, his bachelorhood was belittled and taken to task. But it's really only a, as president when during the, the period of the breakdown of the Democratic Party, the secession crisis, that we see a magazine like Vanity Fair start to uh, sketch Buchanan wearing a dress and as a woman. And it's that final year of his presidency where he is, I think, most harshly criticized in the language of gendered insult. And it kind of comes full circle in a way. I mean, he's already almost 70 years old. He's an old man, overwhelmed by his times. And again, Vanity Fair turns him into a woman to sort of unman him in that moment. So gendered insults were used certainly against Buchanan and King. They were used against politicians of all stripes. There's so many fun and colorful insults from this period that we find. And, and I would just point out that Buchanan and King also belittled their political opponents. They did not use the, word, the phrase Aunt Fancy, Aunt Nancy. Um, they may have been more sensitive to gendered insults, given that they were on the receiving end of it. I don't find it in their correspondence, but I do find insults of other kinds. Absolutely. And, and it, it is that it, it gets back to that idea of just how passionate and, and virulent politics were at the time, something that um, I think you really laid out and, and helped to, to kind of break through the layers of that complicated political and social landscape of the time. As our time is drawing near, I wanted to ask you what are you working on now and where is your research taking you from here? This book project uh, certainly has been very important to me. And even in the last several months since publication, I've, been, I've found myself um, still thinking about it and talking about Buchanan and King, but also thinking about the presidency and about the democratic party. As I, as I came to, reflect on my on my book project, I realized that I was also interested in how this party, this Democratic Party, came into being 
how it supported people like Buchanan and King and how it continues to be the oldest political uh, party in American history and by extension, um, world history. And so I'm pleased to know that scholars have written histories of the Democratic Party. There were a few that came out in the 1990s that were a bit of importance, but actually I was surprised that although there's been a resurgence of, of partisan history about the Republican Party, a couple excellent books in the last few years, there's been no recent history of the Democratic Party that considers the party in totality and that essentially makes takes stock of how the party um, has gone wrong and right. And I've been struck by how in popular circles and in particularly uh, right-wing media, we see um, the Democratic Party as being sort of wrong on issues and it's become kind of an attacking point. Then we've seen on the left, particularly in academic circles, a kind of waving of the hand whereby people just say, oh, everything you knew, you know, everything about the Democrats and the Republicans um, in the 19th century, just switch, you know, as if like somehow that answers flattening complexity is the answer. So I have come to, to see a need for a history of the Democratic Party from origins to present that doesn't necessarily engage in either trap, which is to say the hand-waving that the Democrats and the Republicans are somehow just switched in their politics in the 20th century and, and doesn't engage in, you might say, the whitewashing of the Democratic Party's past. I would like to write a book that, in a way, is a presidential synthesis, yes, or really a synthesis of presidential campaigns. So I already know that means it's going to get largely ignored in academic circles, so be it. But that actually looks at the financing of the party, so maybe there is a contribution still. Because I think it's one part that's overlooked, is who's actually paying for these campaigns. Um, and today in our landscape of PACs and super PACs and big donors and self-financed billionaire campaigns, um, we sometimes forget that these parties often went broke in the 19th century. And, and one of the ways that they could assure their, their solvency was to actually appoint their largest donors as like vice president. And it's incredible the number of vice presidential candidates through the years who were just like the big, the big fat cats of the party. So I'd like to look again how money plays a, plays a part in our partisan politics historically, um, how issues do in fact change, how sectional tensions played a part, how, how surprisingly procedural issues are often some of the most important uh, debates within party history, how manhood and bachelorhood plays a role because the Democratic Party nominated three bachelors in this period, Buchanan was the first, but then Samuel Tilden in 1876, and again, Grover Cleveland in 1884. So I think it's interesting, too, how a certain kind of manhood um, led the top of the ticket often in the Democratic Party. So those issues aren't going away for me. I am a 19th century historian by training. So, I mean, at one level, it might be a smarter move to sort of stop uh, with someone like a William Jennings Bryan, who I know something about from my reading, but I think this is a book that's going to push me to go into the 20th century and beyond and to learn a new historiography, which I'm excited to do. I've always been a, a fan of Franklin Roosevelt ever since I was a kid, so I somehow know a lot about him. 
but yeah, it's going to require me to breed more broadly, to think in more holistic terms. I've begun to shift my teaching a bit in this way. I've, I've started to teach a class called U.S. Presidents and First Ladies. I'd like to teach a special topics class on the history of the Democratic Party. And broadly speaking, try to, to bring American history to the present day is one of the things I now do in my survey classes. So I don't know, maybe if it aligns with my view of how politics should and can be relevant. Um, and so I look forward to seeing where this book takes me. For now, I have a working title. It's called The Party of No, When the Democrats Were Conservative. Well, it definitely sounds like you've got your work ahead of you. And I know, speaking for myself, and I imagine the audience as well, that we will very much look forward to seeing what you come up with. Thank you, Jerry. And thank you for joining us, Tom. Thanks so much again to Thomas Balserski for joining me and for the wonderful conversation. I'll be eagerly looking forward to his future work. In the meantime, I hope you'll consider picking up Bosom Friends and giving it a read. Believe me, there are many more insights there than we had time to cover in this episode. I've posted links to some other interviews that Tom has done, as well as a couple of C-SPAN appearances on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. On there, you'll also find various ways to subscribe to this podcast as well as past episodes, including not only interviews with other historical scholars and authors, but also the narrative series examining each presidency in depth, one at a time. For those who are new to the podcast, since I began in January 2017, I've gone through the presidencies of George Washington and John Adams, and am now in the middle of the series on Jefferson's presidency. It may be a bit before I get to Buchanan, but I hope you'll stay along for the journey. Before we go, I'd like to give special thanks to my husband, Alex, for helping with audio editing for this episode. As my schedule has been a bit more pressing than normal, I could not have gotten this episode out in time without his assistance. Finally, I'd like to thank you, dear listener, for joining us. If you're not already, I hope you'll follow me on social media, where I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Until next time, Stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.